This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Hello, and welcome to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. This is Jennifer Milner, here with co-host Dr. Linda Bluestein. Before we introduce today's guest, we'd like first to remind you about how you can help us help you. First, subscribe to the Bendy Bodies podcast and leave us a review. This is helpful for raising awareness about hypermobility and associated disorders. Second, share the Bendy Bodies podcast with your friends, family, and providers. We really appreciate you helping us grow our audience in order to make a meaningful difference. This podcast is for you. Our very special guest today is Dr. Leonard B. Weinstock, board-certified gastroenterologist and president of Specialists in Gastroenterology and Advanced Endoscopy Center. Dr. Weinstock is an associate professor of clinical medicine and surgery at Washington University School of Medicine. He is a primary investigator at the Sundance Research Center and the St. Louis Pain Clinic. Dr. Weinstock has published more than 135 articles, abstracts, editorials, book chapters, and poster presentations at national meetings. He is currently researching the role of mast cell activation syndrome, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, restless leg syndrome, and the inflammatory condition rosacea. Dr. Weinstock, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. How did you come to develop a special interest in hypermobility disorders and MCAS? Well, um, it's a rabbit hole, as they say. Once you start figuring things out, you go deeper and deeper, and more things become clear, and then you more and then you get wrapped up in them. I would say that each situation with the EDS and MCAS came from two particular patients who wound up becoming case reports. Uh, each of them uh, opened my eyes to things that I never learned in medical school, GI fellowship, residency, uh, even in practice. Uh, so I discovered them on my own, in part by um, learning, trying to figure out what was wrong with these two individuals. And um, uh, one of them actually, told me what MCAS was because she had it. She called me up and wanted to learn more about low-dose naltrexone, which I have expertise in. And she said, I have POTS and MCAS. I said, What's, what are those? And uh, <laughs> basically those are conditions that hitherto had been relegated to allergists and cardiologists and neurologists, but they really didn't make their way to the gastroenterology liter literature. So um, I learned a lot from her and then helped her figure out um, how to manage SIBO, which had not been connected, and, and also how to manage uh, naltrexone. And then the other one uh, was a patient who had all kinds of symptoms, but she had SIBO and uh, complex regional pain syndrome and in effort to find out why she was having this terrible pain, 
uh, we undercovered um, the diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome uh, as explaining her um, her sleep apnea, basically uh, OSD, the um, uh, loose membranes that collapse when you're sleeping, leading towards uh, sleep apnea. Uh, and this OSA um, then will lead towards increased inflammation, which I thought had a role in causing her uh, complex regional pain syndrome and then treating the um, sleep disturbance, the sleep apnea disturbance, the SIBO, and then giving low-dose naltrexone. It helped a lot. And then later on, after her case report was published, uh, it became clear that she developed more symptoms compatible with mast cell activation syndrome. So things came around in a circle and started discovering in more and more of my patients that they had the evil triad. Dun, dun, dun. Sure. <laughs> Basically, EDS, it's MCAS, and it's POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. That's interesting. So when you started diving deeper into um, people with EDS and sort of researching all of those things that had kind of come together uh, through all of the um, trying to uncover what was this issue and this issue and this issue with that one patient, um, what, what GI disorders have you discovered are more prevalent in EDS, hypermobility spectrum disorder, and MCAS? Okay. Wow. Well, first of all, you could say every single GI symptom known to mankind can be a common problem in all of these patients with all of these syndromes, whether you're talking about difficulty swallowing, start from the top, sores in the mouth, burning mouth, difficulty swallowing, chest pain, heartburn, upper abdominal discomfort, uh, bloating, gas, constipation, diarrhea, um, and disordered uh, bowel elimination. As far as symptoms, that covers from top to bottom. As far as syndromes, well, that's the thing. Um, I always hated the word syndromes because it just didn't make sense that we had so much of our lives spent in medicine and research, and there were so many smart people, but there are so many conditions that are called syndromes and therefore the underlying cause was never really known. Well, if you take a bunch of syndromes that you can imagine, um, you know, like fibromyalgia syndrome, uh, interstitial cystitis syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, and you, and you look at these symptoms, well, these are uh, symptoms that patients with our friendly uh, evil triad experience all the time. And uh, they suffer from these syndromes. Uh, and when you get down to it, you can come up with a common denominator uh, for many of them and say, okay, all these syndromes in your body are caused by mast cell activation syndrome um, and or um, POTS. Um, Ehlers-Danlos on the face of things, you'd say, well, why should a bendy body person uh, have GI symptoms um, or mast cell symptoms or POTS. But in fact, if you're coming at from that angle, they do have an increased frequency of those two syndromes 
um, there is a idea that um, mast cell activation syndrome with release of uh, chemicals that cause growth may actually be part and parcel of the cause for hypermobile uh, EDS with increasing growth of tissues, of ligaments, of joints, um, in the, uh, and tendons in the joints, uh, we get into the trouble of the ultimate um, sequelae leading towards uh, the hypermobility. So it may be uh, that, uh, in fact, MCAS may be at the heart of many patients who have um, hypermobile EDS. That is so interesting. That's really interesting. And, and I think that um, a lot of times people look at themselves as hypermobile and say, and say perhaps, I have EDS, and also I might have some of this, this, and this. And the hypermobility or the EDS is the thing in the middle, and the, all the other things seem to them to be offshoots. And rather than saying, no, these, these things are all equal, or these things are all just as important and need that attention, at least from the, the people that I work with on a, on a different side um, than in a clinical aspect. They're like, I have this, but then I have this and this, but it's not as big of a deal, but it really is. And dealing with one will absolutely help deal with the others. Like you said, they all sort of loop together. So if they've got these issues, if they've got some of these, these disorders, how, how would these be worked up and treated? I know that's a huge question. Well, that is a huge question. Well, let me just step back. So I gave you a range of symptoms from top to bottom, north to south, uh, but um, you have to also then say the syndromes uh, that EDS is associated with, and that would include um, motility disorders, um, loopy, droopy, um, connective tissue in the gut leading towards small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or in the colon, chronic constipation. Uh, in patients who have POTS, who have EDS, they have a higher frequency of gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, but, you know, it's probably uh, in that situation, they also have MCAS that's just not diagnosed. Um, there's a condition called uh, median arcuate ligament syndrome, which is uh, upper abdominal pain uh, syndrome where nothing is found unless you do a very special CAT scan. And it may be for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, the ligaments are pulled down, the tissue uh, pressure is pulled down and it tugs on the uh, median arcuate ligament um, and the artery gets trapped by that ligament causing uh, vascular steel and also uh, perhaps mast cell uh, activation. Mm -hmm. So how, how, do you, how do you diagnose these conditions? Uh, well, let's just start with the triad, okay? Uh, of course, I'm speaking to the choir about HEDS, and I don't think I need to elucidate that. Um, but the EDS uh, website is wonderful, um, especially um, finding professionals around the country. Uh, the MCAS, um, you just have to think of a variety of symptoms that are allergic and inflammatory to start saying, uh, how do you explain somebody who has 48 different symptoms? You know, I see these patients coming in who uh, check off their review of systems 
and there are check marks all over the place. And how can somebody conceivably have that? Mm -hmm. If they went to see another doctor, they would say, this is somaticism, uh, fabrication of the illness. But there actually uh, there is a validated questionnaire made by Dr. Moldrings on um, checking off the symptoms and coming up with a score to see whether you should suspect a mast cell activation uh, syndrome of one type or another, uh, basically a release of um, mast cell chemicals. Um, but then what you need to do for mast cell activation syndrome is to measure the chemicals that we have available to make a diagnosis. Uh, and that would be things like um, prostaglandin D2, histamine, both of those require spinning in a cold centrifuge so you don't uh, get artificial low values. There's a uh, chemical called chromogranin A and triptase. Uh, and I'll give you my point of view on triptase. Uh, according to Dr. Afrin's work of a case series of over 400 patients, only 15% had an elevated triptase. And yet the allergists have their own set of criteria. And if you don't have a increased triptase and or um, anaphylaxis, you're out of luck with that diagnosis. So they mm -hmm. try to make it hard to diagnose MCAS, whereas it's not that hard. Uh, if you're a little more liberal, you'll get more patients diagnosed and have advantage of possibly helping more patients. And then, of course, there are three urine samples that can be done. You bring up a great point, though. A lot of it depends on um, finding the right doctor, right? Um, not most of the, the people that I've worked with have not been diagnosed with EDS or HSD um, through a GI specialist. So the people who've worked with you are so fortunate that you've been able to dig deeper and kind of tie those, those things together. For those people who don't have access to a doctor that's helping them find what they need to find out, um, but maybe do have some of these conditions, is there anything that you would want to share about things that patients could do on their own or things you would want them to know? Things like constipation and bloating or IBS, for example. Right, okay. Well, see, if you knew what was wrong with you, let's say you had a diagnosis of EDS and you had GI symptoms, you could plug that into Scholar Google, which is a wonderful website, and uh, come up with articles. And some of the articles are in full text mode. Some of them are just the uh, abstract. But if you're just dealing with the symptoms, then it's tougher. Now, um, once again, you say, if they had hypermobility and they had constipation, could they just plug that into the computer and come up with a differential diagnosis? And I think the answer is yes. But finding the right doctor is tough. I mean, I've, for the last five years, delved into MCAS and I was seeing just tremendous amount of patients, but my, my uh, partners in practice don't wanna make that diagnosis. It's just too confusing for them once they get that diagnosis on somebody. Uh, they're willing, I think, uh, more and more to turf it off to me to see if I would take on their patient who sounds like an MCAS patient. Uh, but it's tough. 
And when you're talking about any one disease that has multiple disciplinary activities, if you will, basically symptoms in many parts of the body, it's very difficult for a specialist to think out of the box and get away from their you know, GI box where they've got reflux problem, do an endoscopy, abdominal pain, do an endoscopy, change of bowel habits, do a colonoscopy. I mean, it's unfortunately, people are taught to start uh, staying within their own box and not looking outside. And that's, that's a big problem. We just don't have a course in med school about multidisciplinary approaches to things. Mm. And that's such a great point. And that's something that Dr. Lucine and I have talked about so many times when people say, what's the what's the one doctor I should go to to get my diagnosis or what's the one place I should go? And we always say it, it depends on where you are, but all it, all it takes is one doctor. It could be your rheumatologist. It could be your GI. It could be a geneticist. It's just finding that one doctor that's willing, like you said, to look outside the box a little bit and to think a little outside the box. That's absolutely true. Right. I just saw a patient last week that, you know, her Geneticist, uh, you know, said, "Yeah, you've got EDS, hypermobile, and uh, by the way, you, sh- you got a lot of GI symptoms. Maybe you should see Dr. Weinstock to try to work that out." And I wound up seeing her, and yeah, she was an obvious case of MCAS. Mm. I think part of that too is that you know we we learned in medical school how to take a history, but then we get into practice and we don't have very much time. And so we really don't do much of taking a history anymore because what really shocked me as I started to do this more and more is in listening to the patient, um, you know, Dr. Afrin says this a lot and it really is true. The patient is telling you what's wrong with them. You just have to listen and take the time. The review of systems uh, for me in med school was very, it was a difficult task to learn all the questions, to spit it out, to have a patient start talking about one and then leading on to a five minute discussion of one symptom, which was not, you know, the reason why they came to the hospital with a pneumonia or whatever. It's a skill that is hard to learn. And um, to this day, it's difficult. Um, my, the questionnaire that Dr. Moldering's has is a great thing. I will have the patients fill it out, rate the severity of it. But, you know, even then, going on to those things that can wind up going with a long uh, explanation. And that said, as, as Linda said, you only have a certain amount of time in standard insurance-based medicine to see a patient and then get on and get on to the next. It's challenging. Mm-hmm. It is. And, and knowing the questions to ask and, and as a patient, knowing what information to give can be really tricky. Absolutely. There are some symptoms that we've talked about, um, like constipation, bloating, that I think a lot of people are aware of and, and sort of already understand. There's a, f- there's a few things that come up consistently in people with HEDS or other connective tissue disorders that may not be as well understood, though. Can you just talk for a second about um, gastroparesis and SIBO as well? I think those are, are two that are serious and should be discussed and may not be on everyone's radar. 
Okay, so gastroparesis is delayed emptying of the food from the stomach. And you can see it in patients who have MKS, but more often in postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome since it's um, a case of autonomic dysfunction. And the um, parasympathetic or the vagal tone is responsible for the contraction waves to allow food to exit from the stomach. Um, so I've seen some very severe cases of it. I've had uh, several patients on it get uh, jejunal feeding tubes, and it doesn't always, you know, respond to medications. It's tough. You know, you can use mestinon, which is a uh, vagal uh, activator. Uh, there aren't many great motility medicines. Um, uh, there's procalipride that came out recently that has some activity there. But if you have such a sympathetic imbalance, you know, it's hard to override it. Mm. So, you know, you can only do so much. You can change the diet. You could uh, ultimately uh, feed somebody liquids because usually liquids empty out of the stomach a lot better than solids. So, um, you know, that's some of the things. And then there are patients who have nausea. You think it's gastroparesis, but in fact, they're emptying the food too fast. Um, and then they fill up the duodenum too fast, and then they get expansion of their small intestine and nausea from that. And then there's yet one other condition that you have to think about when you're working up somebody for delayed gastric emptying is could they have a superior mesenteric artery syndrome where they've lost weight, they've lost fat around the artery and the artery uh, basically contracts um, or puts pressure on the duodenum and shuts it off. Mm -hmm. Do you see, that's interesting because I've had two different dancers um, somewhere on the hypermobility spectrum who have both had uh, superior mesenteric artery syndrome, right? SMAS. Um, and I wondered if there was a link between those or not, but never had anybody mention that together. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, the SIBO, can you circle back to that really quick? Because that's one I don't think is on a lot of radars. Absolutely. Uh, it's, um, there are many great sites to learn about SIBO, um, SIBOinfo.com. But when you're talking about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, uh, you're dealing with a syndrome. So there are many different causes, over 40 different causes for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Uh, when we look at the uh, HEDS patients, they can have it for several different reasons. Um, they can have the loopy, droopy small intestine, and then it's hard to get around um, the small intestine to basically, you get basically a sewer with regards to the small intestine. So the viscerostosis, the sinking of the small bowel, when you stand up, you just have a situation where it's hard for the contraction to move things up. But there are other causes in um, EDS to cause small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, there's defective collagen synthesis. Uh, there's a deficiency of a protein uh, and also autonomic dysfunction. So uh, if we're losing contractility, the small bowel will again get a sump 
uh, situation where we just have this bacteria sitting around, not getting cleared with good old um, migrating motor complex uh, waves at night to do a sweeper wave to clean out the small bowel. So what happens is the small bowel bacteria bind to the small intestine lining. It can cause inflammation. Um, and of course it can cause gas because you get uh, carbohydrates that are poorly digested coming down, sits in the small intestine uh, or the sugars sit there and then the bacteria start consuming it causing uh, gas production, bloating, distension. And if it's hydrogen, then it's usually diarrhea. And if it's methane production, it's usually constipation. I have a question about the, uh, with SIBO and the breath test, how accurate is that? Great question. Um, so it's in the 70% accuracy. You know, it's nothing is perfect uh, because uh, direct measurement by putting a tube down into the small intestine risk contamination and and then the other issue is is that you may only be sampling the upper jejunum but the problem is the upper ileum and so you're not getting down far enough uh, but uh, the studies where people have had too many uh, bacteria in the duodenum which is the first part of the uh, small intestine beyond the stomach if they've got bacterial overgrowth, they've got severe symptomatology uh, and it does correlate well with the aspiration and the breath test. And if the breath test is uh, negative, but you strongly suspect SIBO, do you go ahead and treat with antibiotics or do you uh, do further investigation or how do you approach that usually? So, you know, as far as bloating, there are many causes for bloating. Uh, people always assume, well, it's bacterial uh, indigestion and production of gas. But um, in MCAS, those patients can have a spontaneous bloating, not related to eating or sometimes related to eating as well, because the mediators cause a paralysis of the small bowel with distension. Uh, and so that's one thing that can occur. Um, we did look at a study of um, 139 patients who had MCAS and did breath tests on them and compared them to controls. And 30% of the MCAS patients had typical SIBO with hydrogen elevation versus 10% of controls. So one out of 30 had a false positive breath test, you might say. Um, and a number of the um, mast cell patients also had elevations of their methane levels. Uh, so um, certainly, you know, slow movement uh, in MCAS can lead towards bacterial overgrowth. But if they don't have it, you know, think about the treating the underlying mast cell activation syndrome. So, you know, should you treat a patient who's got a negative breath test? Well, if they give you additional symptomatology to make you think, let's say there's hydrogen sulfide or other bacteria in there with a terrible odor, a quick response to eating, you know, 30 to 60 minutes after eating, then you could consider uh, giving um, uh, empirical therapy. You had mentioned um, earlier a relationship between uh, MALS, the median arcuate ligament syndrome and MCAS. Would you just circle back to that and explain a little bit more on that? Sure, so there are patients who have MCAS and POTS, 
who are then discovered um, to have uh, a median arcuate ligament uh, syndrome on basically a breath hold, deep expiration breath hold angiogram, CAT scan. So it's an angio CAT scan. Uh, and um, when these patients have undergone the appropriate surgery, their mast cell symptoms improve. Now, exactly why, we really don't know. And then their POTS can improve as well. It used to be thought, oh, this is just abdominal pain, upper abdominal pain. You may or may not hear uh, abdominal brewery when you listen with your stethoscope in the upper abdomen. Uh, but, um, you know, now we know so much more it's uh, associated with the evil triad. So you have written extensively about low-dose naltrexone and various different applications. Um, can you talk about low-dose naltrexone a little bit? What patients uh, might want to know about that particular treatment? First of all, um, I don't think I could practice without it. And I've been using it since 2005. And I've been using it for conditions that are uh, painful, including uh, EDS, uh, joint pain, autoimmune conditions, or inflammatory conditions. And um, what it does, it's basically tricking the body to make more endorphins. So high-dose naltrexone, which has been out since 1984, for prevention of um, narcotic and alcohol abuse um, was discovered very early on to work in a totally different way when low doses were used. And it was found out that when you use a low dose of it, um, one to 4.5 milligrams as opposed to 50 to 100 milligrams, something unique happens. Basically it only uh, 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 stays in our body for six hours. And during that six hours, it binds to the nerve cells, endorphin cells, endocrine cells that basically produce um, uh, endorphins and enkephalin. Uh, and basically what is happening uh, during that time, the body senses it's not getting enough of its normal circulating endorphins. And so it's starting to build more of the receptors and starting to build up more endorphins, but can't release it because it's being blocked. And then when the uh, drug goes out and uh, is excreted in the urine, then our cells that produce endorphins give us a big burst of endorphins and we have more receptors for the endorphins so that they work better. And so endorphins by themselves uh, reduce pain um, they also attach to T and B cells, lymphocytes, that are responsible for causing inflammation. And when we have a particular disease, like let's say sarcoidosis or mast cell activation syndrome, where there's too much inflammation going on, we can decrease it by uh, changing the T and B cell activation. So uh, the T cells are wrapped up with mast cell activation, uh, there are these microparticles that come from T cells that activate the mast cell. And by uh, tamping down on the T cell activation, uh, mast cell activation syndrome can get better. I looked at 116 patients treated with M uh, who had MCAS treated with LDN, low-dose naltrexone, 
and 60% found improvement in a whole variety of symptoms. Uh, 20% couldn't uh, tolerate it um, because of maybe the endorphin storm or just general intolerance of medications by MCAS patients, and 20%, it just didn't work. But to have a drug that's more than 50% effective in MCAS is significant. Absolutely. Sarcoidosis was an amazing case that led to a case report where uh, these uh, nodules, um, low-density uh, lesions in the spleen uh, and the liver went away entirely with LDN and the patient's main symptoms of severe fatigue uh, was dramatically improved. So that was a case of sarcoidosis outside of the lung. And then we've had a couple of cases where pulmonary sarcoidosis patients have had significant improvement as well. LDN is absolutely one of my uh, preferred things as well. And I don't know what would happen if I, if I couldn't prescribe that either. So it's, I, I hear you, I totally agree. And what other therapies do you frequently recommend? So in um, EDS, um, the PEA and the LDN, in MCAS, you know, your ground um, steps are building blocks would be antihistamines, H1, H2 blockers. And now for the H1, H2 blocker, we primarily have um, famotidine. Uh, you know, you can use cimetidine, but has more drug interactions. And then there's um, nitizidine. Uh, it's just harder to find. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Zantac is gone from the market because that used to work uh, pretty well as well. And then there's uh, loratadine uh, and a host of the Allegra uh, fenfaxidine, which are the H1 blockers, the non-sedating H1 blockers. And each of those drugs should be given twice a day. Sometimes patients take it three times a day because it fades off. The, uh, then, you know, I love uh, vitamin C and D, who couldn't benefit from C and D? Well, sometimes the C patients, people who are taking C have trouble. So I like the sustained release uh, C. And then, um, and then actually uh, Dr. Mulderings, one of the experts and discoverers of MCAS, feels that we should be trying 500 of vitamin C as opposed to the 1,000 because uh, there's a sweet spot that may be out there. Uh, for some, for many patients. And then I, again, very quickly will uh, try LDN for patients with MKS. And, uh, you know, quercetin um, can be helpful stabilizing the mast cell as well. So that's step one, basically. And then the biggest step is also saying to the patient, you know, you got to look for your triggers and diet plays a dramatic role in MCAS. So uh, you, you know, need to try gluten-free, dairy-free, yeast-free, and look for histamine foods that uh, could be exacerbating the problem. That, that makes sense. And speaking of Dr. Moulderings, um, you wrote a paper with, uh, published a paper with Drs. Afrin and Moulderings 
called COVID-19 hyperinflammation and post-COVID-19 illness may be rooted in mast cell activation syndrome. This was published fairly recently. Um, could you talk a little bit about what you would like for people to know about COVID-19 and hyperinflammation? Okay, well, when you look at all the cells that are involved and somebody gets a bad case of COVID, um, they have this wild cytokine storm that goes on that destroys their organs. And it's not necessarily the virus itself doing, it's the reaction by our bodies to uh, the virus creating the inflammation. And then there's a cascade that goes down on people where the uh, variety of um, cytokines, which are inflammatory chemicals, will destroy our body. The, uh, also, there's uh, hypercoagulability, um, which can cause uh, heart attacks and uh, pulmonary embolism and, so, and strokes. And when we started thinking about this, and this was actually driven a lot by Dr. Afrin, he said, you know, a lot of the symptoms that patients are having <clears throat> with COVID and, and post-COVID syndrome, they just really sound like a patient with severe MCAS. So basically it was his philosophy that uh, if you've got an undiagnosed, unrecognized, untreated MCAS patient, of which we have a lot in our population, possibly up to 10 to 17%, then when you get a cytokine storm and you're activating the extremely uh, mutated uh, hyperactive mast cell, that this explodes and creates a continued and exaggerated cytokine storm. And so when we looked at our own patients and you know we have a research study group, um, a study group of mast cell experts, um, We've you know asked, well, were any of your patients getting very ill, seriously ill or, or dying, the ones that you're treating? And the answer was no. So it really started coming uh, to our philosophy, coming to a philosophy that if we could uh, look at our own patient base, that if we could protect the p bad patients that we have now who are sick, maybe this will apply to other people in the country. And, um, you know, when we looked at all the symptoms from head to toe that a patient experienced and compared them to what the symptoms were that patients with COVID um, acute and chronic have, the overlap was dramatic. So, so many of the symptoms that these poor patients were having were the same as what we see with patients who have MCAS. And I think that, you know, so many of the treatments for MCAS, I know the, uh, the whole debate about, do you create a bigger basket or a smaller basket for MCAS? But so many of the, the therapies are so safe that it seems logical to say, well, you can, whether it's because you have COVID or because you ha potentially have uh, MCAS, but you don't have COVID, that in many cases it's worth a try because um, you know we're not talking about some of the you know more toxic types of treatments. Right, and they're being studied, you know, and they are absolutely being studied. And um, 
one of our members on the, talked about his experiences with high dose vitamin D. Very exciting information, how that dramatically helped people. And there mm -hmm. clearly is, if you're low in vitamin D in general, your chances of getting out of the hospital are much lower than if you have high vitamin D levels. So, you know, there was a study looking at uh, and published in the GI Journal about using high dose uh, famotidine showing an improvement in um, hospital survival. Uh, speaking of famotidine, actually, would you be willing to briefly comment on famotidine versus um, PPIs? Because I feel like uh, proton pump inhibitors are prescribed so readily. So many patients go on them and then they never really get addressed again about whether or not they could wean off. And, um, you know, they can interfere with uh, nutrient absorption, right? And, and cause some other problems. Would you be willing to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, it's, you know, when you've got a patient and you're doing an endoscopy and they've got an ulcerated esophagus and they've got scar tissue and narrowing and they're really basically, you know, stage four of a uh, acid condition, there's really no other choice other than surgery to fix a hiatus hernia than to give a proton pump inhibitor. If somebody has mild to moderate heartburn, it really is important for the doctor to try as much as possible to keep it simple. And that would be working on um, dietary and behavioral modifications and trying to start with the H2 blocker because it's a lot easier to take somebody ultimately off a H2 blocker than it is a proton pump inhibitor. You have this hyper acid phenomenon when you take somebody off a proton pump inhibitor and um, whether it's because they've built more pumps and then when basically the uh, antagonist goes away, the PPI goes away, then they just start pumping out, pumping out acid like crazy. So it's, it's, it's tough. It's easy to write the prescription, but tougher to deal with the consequences. As far as, you know, the real problems, you know, if you you could look, come up with, you know, 10 different things uh, that PPIs could do for you. Um, I don't see that much, you know, in terms of B12 deficiency or malabsorption. Um, most of them uh, allows enough acid to come in to digest meat um, and not get indigestion because of that, or you know, iron deficiency or B12 deficiency. So you're not shutting iron the acid down completely. You're diminishing it. Um, you may diminish it enough that your risk for um, C. difficile increases. You may be doing enough depression so that you're allowing excess bacteria to be in your stomach. And if you're regurgitating all the way up into the high esophagus, your risk for infection increases for like pneumonia. Um, but, you know, the other, even, so the calcium is a, a consideration as well. So that's a concern, um, and there's calcium citrate, which you could take with your PPI to assure that your calcium will get absorbed. But even osteoporosis, there's some debate still about it, um, yet I do believe that there's increased uh, risk of fractures. Um, there are studies, you know, 
for and against that. Okay. And, and what do you recommend that patients do if they have difficulty finding a gastroenterologist who understands complex and frequently missed conditions like Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, mast cell activation syndrome, and some of the other things that we've been discussing? Okay. Well, you could try to educate your current gastroenterologist because um, you, I wrote an article along with uh, Dr. Moldring's Afrin, uh, Dr. Pace, and Dr. Rizai about MCAS, uh, basically called um, MCAS Primer for the Gastroenterologist. And I initiated that project after seeing and reading in our own GI journal, POTS, a primer for the gastroenterologist. And, um, and there's some recent um, studies that were published on um, a review of EDS by Dr. Fizay um, on Ehlers-Danlos and GI symptoms. So you could try to bring those into your doctor, in, see if they have access to them on their computer or just print it out on your own um, or keep on looking around. Now there's some allergists who range from, I don't believe it exists to, I won't make the diagnosis unless the tryptase is high to, yeah, this sounds like MCAS, I'll treat it is a big range, so an allergist may be helpful for MKS. The EDS, I'd say, if you look for physical therapists, they're the ones to tell you which doctors are in tune with EDS. And then some of those doctors are going to be aware of POTS and, and MCAS. But it's tough. Uh, I will say it's tough. And it's a difficult problem, and it's not going to get better until medical school changes. Okay. And, and we will have a link to those articles in our show notes also to make it a little easier for pe people to find specific things that Dr. Weinstock has mentioned today. So could you, um, as we're wrapping up here, would you be able to let us know uh, what patients you're able to see and um, treat? Me uh, personally? Yep. Um, so. Uh, first of all, because I uh, have a Missouri license, I only will see Missouri patients. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I will see patients. Uh, so uh, if they just have POTS, I would prefer that they see cardiologists or neurologists. Mm -hmm. um, and there are uh, autonomic neurologists around. They specialize in autonomic disease. And there are some cardiologists who are on board with treating POTS. And because basically the literature for POTS has been in the cardiac and neurology literature all this time. Uh, EDS patients only um, if they don't have symptoms in other parts of the body. You know, I think um, basically going to pain specialists, uh, pain, you know, if everybody had uh, access um, to doctors like you or um, in Providence, Rhode Island, where there's a great doctor, you know, life would be different. They could, if you could clone yourself, that'd be great. Um, 
And then MKS, yeah. So I'm seeing MKS patients if they have predominant uh, GI symptoms. Okay, that makes sense. And and could you let people know where they can find you? And is there anything else that we should have asked you about? Okay, well, um, gidoctor.net. Uh, I've got a lot of information and um, I post my articles there. So you may find uh, some of the articles we talked about full length. Um, and um, what to do? I mean, try and find, so uh, also for um, mast cell activation syndrome, um, TMS for a cure, the TMS, F-O-R-A-C-U-R-E.org has a lot of good things uh, on it. Um, and then I think it's, you know, it's really important um, that you look for resources, which you probably made people avail uh, made aware of, on surgical management of EDS. And, um, you know, whether it's um, the mast cells, um, that you have to deal with at the time of the sedation. Uh, that's really important. So if you have a, a crossover with EDS and MCAS, you got to make sure that you're getting intravenous pre-sedation therapy to reduce complications of uh, the sedatives. Um, and then there's, uh, you've made some wonderful handouts for the operative uh uh, addressing operative problems and including, you know, intubation and uh, how the surgeon stitches you up. Definitely not uh, enough awareness in, in that arena for sure. So thank you for, for mentioning that. It is a great handout. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, well, Dr. Weinstock, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on the podcast today. We've really enjoyed chatting with you. And um, it's been really a great conversation. I'm sure a lot of people are going to learn a lot. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. And you all have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Today, we have been speaking with Dr. Leonard Weinstock, board certified gastroenterologist and primary investigator at the Sundance Research Center and the St. Louis Pain Clinic. Dr. Weinstock, thank you again so very much for taking the time to come on the Bendy Bodies podcast and sharing your expertise with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. Please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the Bendy Bodies YouTube channel as well. Thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. Visit our website, www.bendybodies.org, for more information. For a limited time, you could win an autographed copy of the popular textbook, Disjointed, Navigating the Diagnosis and Management of Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorders, just by sharing what you love about the Bendy Bodies podcast. On Instagram, tag us at Bendy underscore bodies and on Facebook at Bendy Bodies podcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-hosts and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. 
the thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. This podcast is intended for general education only and does not constitute medical advice. Your own individual situation may vary. Do not make any changes without first seeking your own individual care from your physician. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies Podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies Podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.